Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican from America Media. I'm Ricardo De Silva, Associate Editor at America Media, and I'll be stepping in for our regular host, Colleen Dolly, who is now on maternity leave. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerardo Connell and I will take you behind the headlines and into what's going on at the Vatican. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI was laid to rest just before noon Rome time this morning, Thursday, January 5th, 2023, in the grottos underneath St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican where the mortal remains of many pontiffs reside. This is a funeral lacking in precedent, and the rituals of Pope Benedict's passing were less like those of a pontiff. They were more akin to those of a retired bishop, even if he was buried in the red vestments of a holy father. About 50,000 people came to the Vatican to pay their final respects to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who served the Catholic Church for nearly eight years before his historic retirement in February 2013 the first time in 600 years that a pope had resigned from office. Following his resignation, Benedict led a life of relative quiet contemplation at a monastery inside the Vatican for the past decade or so. And Pope Francis concluded his homily, Benedict, faithful friend of the bridegroom. May your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. Joining me on Inside the Vatican today to offer their reflections on today's funeral proceedings and to reflect on the life and legacy of this complex but also controversial Pope are David Gibson and Gerardo Connell. Jerry is our regular co-host on the show. David is the director of the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham, the Jesuit University in New York, and the author, among many others, of The Rule of Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI and His Battle with the Modern World. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. Jerry, David, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Ricardo. Good afternoon from Rome, Ricardo. Where it's not so sunny as it usually is, right? No, it's gray skies. Yes. And there was a mist, I believe, over Rome as at least that's what we can see in the pictures here at the beginning of the funeral, maybe just an hour before the funeral was due to take place. Yes, from early morning there was a mist, it was humid, seven degrees centigrade. Not a very pleasant morning, but kind of a morning suitable for a funeral, I suppose. So, Jerry, you're there, you're coming to us from the Jesuit Curia in Rome, but you were at the funeral today. Can you tell us what that was like, your early impressions of the day? Well, the crowd was perhaps smaller than had been anticipated, 50,000. But as I said in an earlier article, that the real mourning for Benedict took place at the end of February. I remember the last Sunday 
when he spoke from the third floor of the Apostolic Palace from the study window. The square was crowded, many more than there were there today, and people were in tears. This was in 2013 when Pope Benedict XVI resigned formally. Exactly, exactly. And uh, my wife, Elisabetta, had our six-year-old daughters in, in her arms. And uh, when he's finished speaking and the windows closed, she said to her mummy, has the Pope died? Because around her, everybody was crying. So that was really the departure of Benedict. Then on the 28th, when he got into the helicopter and left the Vatican and people were weeping and people were waving at him from windows across the city as he flew over the city. So for the people, in a way, they have distinguished between the end of the papacy and the death of a former pope. And this is very interesting because it means that people were not confused. For them, Benedict's pontificate ended at 8 o'clock on the 28th of February 2013 when the gates of Castle Gondolfo closed and the Swiss guards, who are the Pope's bodyguards, moved away. There was no more Pope to guard. And there was a solemn air. There were many people there. Whereas today we're looking at only 50,000 people. One reporter read said the square wasn't even full. Well, yes, because the square takes up to eighty to 100,000. But you had 125 cardinals, you had 3,700 priests and 400 bishops concelebrating with uh, Pope Francis at the Mass. So that was quite significant. And then you had uh, several heads of state, I think five or seven heads of state, only two official delegations, one from Germany and one from Italy, Germany, the native land of the Pope, Italy, the country where he had lived for 40 years. All the others came in their private capacity, three monarchs, five heads of state, and ministers from several countries. So a tribute of expression of respect for him. And he obviously had made his mark at the civil level, not just at the religious level. David, if I can bring you in there, um, what struck you about this funeral? Well, two things, and I think um, uh, Jerry hit at it. I was just struck by the atmosphere, the mist, the gray day, a January day. Look, Benedict hasn't been Pope for 10 years, and I think Jerry really hit on that that moment of the real ending of, of Benedict's papal career 10 years ago, and the fact that there's been this distance in time until this frail elderly man, 95-year-old, who's been hidden from the world, died. It's a different feeling, obviously, and usually the death of a, a pope, and he's not pope, we have to remember that, he's a former pope, he's a former bishop of Rome, the death of a pope is the trigger for cardinals to come to Rome, everybody to come to Rome, to elect a new pope. So I think there are a lot of factors going into the sense of solemnity here. But there's also something, I guess, a bit poetic about his exit from this world, given that Joseph Ratzinger was born, as he, as, as he always noted, on Holy Saturday hmm. between Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday. He was born in a snowstorm in Bavaria. His mother gave birth to him and a few hours later trudged through the snow to have him baptized in his local church. And I think that that really marked his life and that that in-between kind of sense that he always lived. And I, I think that's, without stretching it, a good metaphor for his, his life at the start and now here at the end. Jerry, this was a historic day because it's the first time that a sitting pope 
presides at the funeral of his immediate predecessor. Yes, uh, it's the first time the sitting pope has presided at the funeral of an emeritus pope, because you ha you've had a few popes in the past who resigned, like Celestine V, but he died outside Rome. He had been in prison, and uh, there was no way that his successor, Boniface VIII, was going to go and celebrate his funeral mass. This today is a funeral without precedent. What was the funeral like? What what was this liturgy like? I, I think two things struck me. First of all, I was in the square when they brought his body out of the basilica, 10 pallbearers carrying the body. They brought it out of the basilica to the steps of St. Peter's, placed it in front of the altar. At that point, the bells were tolling in the basilica. The organ or the harmonium was playing. And then the crowd burst into spontaneous, appreciative applause, applause for the men. And, and, and that was quite a touching moment because you could feel there was some emotion in the crowd. After that, they said the rosary, the, the mass was celebrated, the Pope spoke. Uh, and then at the end of mass, two things touched me. One was when the pallbearers picked up the body again to take it back into the basilica, they stopped in front of Francis and Francis put his right hand on the coffin and held it there for a second like a final fond farewell for the man he had really come to know well over the past 10 years. Before he'd become Pope, he knew him, but to, only to a certain extent. There was, I wouldn't say, a great relationship between them. And indeed, Benedict never imagined that Francis would have been his successor. But in these 10 years, a relationship developed, and that's uh, still to be unpacked what that relationship was. And so at the end, Francis putting his hand on the coffin and holding it there for a second and obviously saying a prayer, it, it was his fond farewell to Benedict. And then the crowd again applauded very, very strongly. The cardinals, the bishops, the uh, priests, the dignitaries, the lay people, they all continued applauding until the coffin disappeared into the basilica. Th those were moments of emotion. The Vatican made it clear that this funeral should be simple, right? That this was not the funeral of a reigning pope. And also Pope Benedict in his own testimony asked that his funeral be marked by simplicity. How was the simplicity shown at the funeral? Well, I think the simplicity was shown by the way the coffin was brought out onto the square. Uh, normally, you would have had a procession, as we had with John Paul II. So it was more, the procession would have been a solemn event. This was a more simple arrival of the coffin onto the square. Secondly, I think the fact there were two prayers which are normally said at the funeral of the Pope, one is from the Diocese of Rome, from the Church of Rome for its pastor, and then from the Eastern Churches for the pastor. Uh, they were not said. There was a special prayer for Benedict. But otherwise, you wouldn't have known the difference except for the presence of the heads of state. When a Pope dies, the Secretariat of State informs all governments, and they are invited to send re representatives. And we saw with John Paul too, you had extraordinary representation. I think David was there as well. And uh, you had, I think, something like 200, both heads of state and leaders of international organizations. And it was very extraordinary. I often think and reflect back on that day that 
St. Peter, who was crucified in this, what is on the side of the basilica, upside down, he could never have imagined that 2,000 years later you would have that kind of funeral. Today, it was a, a more simple funeral. There's only two official delegations of head of state, some other heads of state who came in a private capacity. So you didn't have this more formal. It wasn't that the Pope had died. The Pope in office was presiding over the funeral. David, what strikes you of the stated simplicity? Well, I, th I think what, uh, as Jerry said, you know, this is something that uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, wanted. Remember Jerry back in 2005, the Great Mass to inaugurate his Petrine ministry. He wanted to hold it in St. Peter's Basilica <laughs> because he wanted to focus on Christ. He wanted to focus on on the altar where the Mass would be, be held. And you know, his aides gently said, no, you can't. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of people, and we need to do this in St. Peter's Square. He never wanted the focus to be on his person, and I think this uh, re reflects that. But also, again, as Jerry's indicating, they're trying to thread the needle here. You want to respect, you want to show honor and respect to Joseph Ratzinger, to Benedict XVI, but you don't want to uh, you know, give in to all these people who are demanding that he be treated like a reigning pope, that he be declared a doctor of the church. That and and the other thing is, again, Pope Francis gave a very simple, brief, I think, seven-minute Jerry uh, homily, and it was, you know, it was a funeral homily. It's what Benedict would want. It reflected on the gospel. You always do that. There was really very little, very a few touching lines about Benedict, but it was about the gospel of the day, and it was about hope. Hope, hope, that's something Benedict always stressed, and it is what we're about. It's our hope in the resurrection. That's probably the mark of simplicity that struck me most was in the homily, right? That there was this very simple homily, which did what funeral homilies are intended to do. The general instruction on the Roman Missal states that it should be based on the readings that have been proclaimed that it should be brief, dwell on God's compassionate love and the paschal mystery of the Lord as proclaimed in the scriptures, that it should never be in the style of a eulogy, <laughs> and that it should be, inspire those gathered to find hope in the gift of eternal life. Now, th the homily I know um, has been praised by some already in these early hours, but by quite a few, um, in fact, one person told the Washington Post it was appalling because it was disrespectful to uh, Benedict the Sixteenth by not making enough reference of him, Jerry. What did you think? You're quite right that many people expect a panegyric or eulogy for Benedict. Uh, they, they they hadn't understood neither Benedict nor Francis or what a homily should be doing at a funeral. Yeah, well, Francis uh, did a very uh, particular type of homily because he starts with the word of Jesus on the cross, saying, "Into your hands I commend my spirit." Then he moved and he said, that's an invitation to us as pastors to follow in the, in the path of Jesus. Basically, this was the message. And then he went on to, instead of a panegyric, he went on to present a portrait of the pastor who would be following Jesus. And it was like alluding all the time to Benedict without ever mentioning him. He actually only mentioned Benedict's name once, and that was in the last line of the homily. Right at the end of the homily, Pope Francis says, Benedict, faithful friend of the bridegroom, may your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. And those were the closing words of the homily as a prayer. Yes, and th th this uh, is 
very much in the line of Benedict as well, because I, I've listened to Benedict speak many times, give many talks, give many homilies, and he often went down a track that the audience didn't expect. And Francis did that with his homily today. I think in part they were expecting what Benedict the Sixteenth, but as Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, when he was the dean of the College of Cardinals, presided at the funeral of John Paul II, when he gave much more of a eulogy in his homily to Pope John Paul II than what Pope Francis has done now for Benedict. And so maybe that was part of that expectation. What, what do you think, David? I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, um, it's also, again, it's a demonstration of what a, a funeral homily is to be. And, and again, Francis has spoken many times and, and recently at his, at his general audience, right, Jerry, about what he thinks about Benedict and praising him as a great catechist as well as a theologian. He's been asked about Benedict uh, many times and he's given his opinions, his praise, his thoughts. That's all out there. There's nothing that's being hidden here. There's no other agenda. And again, I, you know, it's understandable. It happens all the time. But homily, funeral homilies are not eulogies, and there, there's an appropriate time for, and place for that. And I'm sure, honestly, that more will come out. I think the, uh, you know, the the afterlife of Benedict is is not over by a long shot. Yes, and basically, some days ago, Francis referred to Benedict. He said he became a contemplative in his retirement, and he said. He's a saint. And if you look at that last line, which Ricardo has read, it's effectively saying, you know, you're in heaven. Mm -hmm. You're with God now. You're with God. And I mean, they, you know, David and I, Ricardo, I don't know if you saw, at the end, there was a group in the square who pushed up a placard saying, Santo Subito, <laughs> make him a, a saint immediately. Echoing what happened at John Paul II's funeral, right? Which was uh, Yeah, at John Paul's the second funeral, you, the, there was such a crowd that was really, David will remember, you, I couldn't get to the television camera when I was working with them. Oh, there are a million people. Well, today's ceremony, the mass, the funeral ceremony, made very clear the distinction between the funeral of a pope who dies in office and one who has resigned 10 years ago. The Vatican offices are functioning today Vatican employees were uh, told that they can attend the funeral if they wish. The, the Vatican flags are at half mass, but the Pope is not dead. The Pope is presiding at the funeral. It's like as if the President of the United States died in office or former President of the United States dies. I think this would be the simplest example to explain to people where the difference lies. Today's atmosphere was totally different. But secondly, this idea of the Santo Subito really was weak it, it didn't and they did not understand that as cardinal semeraro who is the prefect of the vatican department for saint making said recently that benedict had told him i'm not in agreement with the beatification and canonization of popes I hadn't I hadn't uh, heard that, Jerry. That's a great bit of information, and it's I I would agree with it. I think it's one of these things that's reflective of not just Benedict's and Ratzinger's humility, but also his pragmatism. I think he's seen that there's we've just focused on these debates over canonizing popes, and I, I think it's what you said. I mean, in a sense, 
Francis unofficially canonized him. He's a saint in heaven. Let's be done with all of that. Let's give it 50 or 100 years and then decide. I think a better chant would have been dottore subito. You know, should he be a doctor of the church, a teacher? Because that's what he should be more remembered as. I mean, Pope Benedict XVI, as he was, and Pope Emeritus, as he is uh, just before being laid to rest, is a complex figure. And there's much to tease out about his legacy. And I think we're going to spend a long time thinking about that, which I want to do next with you. But there is a time that we need to give. I, I absolutely agree with both of you. There's a time that we need to give for their legacy to come forth and to really for us to study more carefully and to pray and discern, using that wonderful Jesuit word, whether it is appropriate to begin a process of beatification and ultimately canonization for Pope Benedict XVI. After the break, we'll explore some of the highlights of Benedict's life, which has drawn both applause and criticism over his 95 years. Welcome back. Before the break, we covered the funeral of the Catholic Church's first Pope Emeritus. And while it was inappropriate for Pope Francis to turn his homily at the funeral into a eulogy, I think it's fitting for us as journalists to review the lights and shadows of Benedict's leadership as Pope, Archbishop, and doctrinal watchdog for over a quarter of a century. Dave, in your obituary about the Pope Emeritus for America Magazine, there was one paragraph that stuck out to me. You wrote... Benedict's legacy is ambiguous even in the most sympathetic reading. Whether history's verdict will be charitable or damning may depend on whether the influence of his powerful words can compensate for some of the more listless aspects of his administration. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, you know, I'd be interested to uh, hear what Jerry says, but I, I do think we have to recognize that it was an interestingly divided figure. I mean, he's a great theologian, a great scholar, but he was also at the pinnacle of power and authority in the Catholic Church for a long time, really, since the Second Vatican Council, where he was a paritas, and he had a great influence there. Then as a theologian in the decade after that, then again, Archbishop of Munich, and right after that, 1981, appointed as head of the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith by Pope John Paul II, and was there for 24 years. Mm -hmm. Then he became Pope Benedict XVI, whether he wanted to or not. So, you know, he was an amazingly learned man. I think, the, again, the, the trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth that he wrote while Pope will go down as his kind of capstone. But he, he also had to run things and he had to make decisions. Some say, this is great. They cheered him on. He reigned in theologians. Others said that was really, um, you know, too cruel and and too forceful and uncharitable and unnecessary. Again, different perspectives. How do you integrate these two visions into the same person, Joseph Ratzinger? And, and I think it's a vision that's being championed by so many. I mean, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, he said, the world loses a formative figure of the Catholic Church, a combative personality, and a clever theologian. Jerry, what do you make of the legacy that Benedict XVI leaves? I've been reflecting quite a bit in these days. And I think, uh, as David said, he was an official peritus or expert at the Second Vatican Council. 
and he really was seen as in the progressive side of the church then. But if you remember, Paul VI in 1977 made him Archbishop of Munich, and months later he made him a cardinal. Now, Paul VI was the one who helped finish the Second Vatican Council and then began to implement the Second Vatican Council. And he he, he made two significant decisions, one regarding the age of retirement of bishops at the beginning of the 1970s, said bishops had to hand in their resignation at the age of 75. And then a little later, he said cardinals who reached the age of 80 lose the right to vote in a conclave. Now, what Benedict has done, he's taken it to the next logical step by making it possible for popes to resign. And that was an extraordinarily courageous decision. It met a lot of opposition from cardinals. Uh, even uh, recently in, uh, uh, in interviews, Cardinal Bertone, his Secretary of State, said, I, I kind of argued with him not to do it. We know that Archbishop Ganschwein, his secretary, tried to dissuade him. But Benedict told them, the decision has been made. It's not for discussion. I think this is a significant legacy that has not yet been fully understood. If I can just jump in real quickly, I'd also pick up on that, Jerry. What I said before is, that, again, his resigning is also uh, a very untraditional move. He's Again, who is Benedict? Who is Joseph Ratzinger? So many people want to see it in an either or, good or bad, or to pick out one element of his life as a theologian, or as the Grand Inquisitor, or as Pope, or as Cardinal, or as Peritus, expert at Vatican II. You can't, you can't do that with anybody, and you certainly can't do that with Benedict. Here's this uber-traditional Pope, right? He goes and resigns, which is the most, I don't know, uh, innovative thing you could imagine anyone to do. Vanguard. He, yeah, <laughs> Vanguard. So, you know, these easy snap judgments just don't really work. And again, going, I've been asked in several interviews, always focused on his conservative moral theology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at uh, Caritas and Veritate, his, his writings on social justice and on the Catholic social teaching, he's to the left of Bernie Sanders here in the American context. So, you know, you have to look at what, as we say, the man in full. I mean, Jerry, you said this on Inside the Vatican, our special episode, as we found out that that the Pope Emeritus had died, you said you see a very different picture if you sort of hone in on one element, on one aspect of the frame, than if you zoom out and you see a wider view. And, and we're certainly seeing this. We're seeing that you can't pigeonhole Pope Benedict XVI into any one particular category. I think if we start with the kind of ideology of polarization, which Francis said in the interview with America, you remember, polarization is not Catholic. I think if you start with that ideology, then you are going to misread, misinterpret, not just Benedict's papacy, but much else in the church. And I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's important, uh, like if you go to the abuse question. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important question. If you look at and say, ah, in, when he was for the four years or whatever he was in as Archbishop of Munich, uh, there were three, four cases that he didn't handle well. And then if, if you make that your full picture, you have misinterpreted what exactly Benedict did. 
first of all, as a prefect of the what was then the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which from the beginning in 2001 began handling in big time the number of cases, abuse cases that were coming in. And then when he goes on as Pope, and you see that he, he removed more than 800 priests from the priesthood. He really reformed the protocols for dealing with clerical sexual abuse in the Vatican. Yes, he, he laid the foundations yeah. for the legal reform to, first of all, deal with the abuse and then to protect children. He laid the foundations. Francis has built on that. But but Benedict also, uh, I think, punished almost 4,000, 3,700 priests. Of course, this gets lost with the four cases that he, he's claimed to have mishandled in Munich. And historically, he brought to book, I mean, Maciel Maciel, right? Uh, just a serial abuser. This, this was a, a, an extraordinary experience because when Maciel celebrated his 70 years as priest in Rome, something like 30 cardinals, 20 to 30 cardinals, attended the celebration. The only cardinal who did not attend the celebration was Joseph Ratzinger. Jerry, can we just be clear for our listeners, who was Maciel Maciel? Maciel was the founder of the Legionaries of Christ. He was a Mexican priest who had extraordinary influence. He gave a lot of money to the Vatican, to John Paul II. He convinced them that he was really the most orthodox person on the planet. And he had open doors in the Vatican. And yet he was living this double life, which became clear towards the end. But when the victims began to send their information to the Vatican, it began to be sidelined. But Joseph Ratzinger saw in the congregation the the dossier building up and up and up. And at a certain point with Shikluna, he said to Shikluna, you go and begin to check out this. And so he was interviewing the first victim, uh, Juan Vacu, in New York on the day that John Paul II died. And Shikluna phoned Ratzinger and said, since when the Pope dies, those in official positions lose their office. He, he said, what should I do? And, and Ratzinger said, continue. So Shikluna continued. And he returned to Rome on the eve of the conclave with a report, which he gave to, to Cardinal Ratzinger. Cardinal Ratzinger went into the 2005 conclave with this report. And when he became Pope, one of the first things he did was take action against this Mexican priest, uh, Maciel. And that he had bypassed the Vatican system. He informed them when he had sent Shikluna. It strikes me that one of the lenses where maybe we go wrong or um, skew the focus a little between Benedict and Cardinal Ratzinger, right? I mean, we we have a sense that there, there, there was there's Benedict the Sixteenth and the papacy of Benedict the Sixteenth, which was complex um, and multi layered, and then we have the reign of. Cardinal Ratzinger as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, um, God's Rottweiler, <laughs> as he became perhaps not charitably known. Dave, what do you make of this distinction between these two personas that he had to leverage uh, throughout his life? Well, I, I think um, in in one respect, look, he had been head of the, the CDF for almost a quarter of a century under John Paul II. And he'd had that record. He'd done so much, really. And it also wasn't just that. He'd given book-length interviews. He'd continue to write, lecture. He, he kind of developed his own <laughs> side 
magisterium, if you will, uh, um, and teachings, which were very fruitful. You know, he was 78 when he was elected pope. As we said before, he did not want this job. John Paul II was 58 when he was elected pope. And Joseph Ratzinger, to a degree, as when he became Pope Benedict XVI, he was able to sit back. The, the hard work had been done. Now he was pope. To a degree, he could sit back and and focus on things like writing his trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth, things like that. And I think actually so many Catholics, so many fans of his, and I think his his fans even posthumously could be um, a more problematic legacy for Benedict. But his fans assumed that you know eight years of Benedict as pope was cementing this legacy. And that's why they were so shocked and felt betrayed when someone like Pope Francis was elected. And, and that's a problem, you know, seeing Benedict did not share the views of so many of his followers. He's called them my, my more fanatical friends at times. He was a great theologian. But he, he was weak in terms of administration, management. He didn't like conflict. And he, he said this in the interview with Peter Sewell three years before his election. Also, when he, when by the time he became Pope, he had uh, almost lost the sight of one eye and he, he had a pacemaker. People didn't really know this when he became Pope. Secondly, we received this morning early what they call the Rogito. Which is the legacy of the Pope that is buried with him. It's a thousand word resume of what they consider key elements of his life. So it's the official account of his life that is laid in his casket. It's written in Latin. They read it. They put it in, in a metal uh, tube and they've put it in the coffin with him. So it's buried with him. But there they list three things that are, that are interesting. They said he promoted dialogue with the Anglicans, with the Jews, and with the representatives of other religions. That's very interesting because his relations with the Anglicans was uh, uh, rather complicated. Hmm. Secondly, they, they, they then said, they draw attention to the fact of what he did to combat the abuse of the clergy and to promote conversion in the church at all levels in the church. And then they talk, the third thing, they mentioned his writings the uh, the trilogy that David mentioned on the life of Jesus and uh, the uh, encyclicals, the three encyclicals and other. But I, I was struck by the folk that they mentioned the relations with the Anglicans because that created a lot of problems because he opened the door for groups of Anglicans and he was very sensitive to Anglican clergymen and Anglican bishops. He opened the door for them to, to become part of the Catholic Church by joining it. and. Uh, th that upset the leadership of the Anglican Church very much, and they did not tell them in advance, except a day or two before he was going to announce it. Then the second thing was his relation with the Jews. Of course, I remember going to Auschwitz, and it was very interesting. The, here was someone who, in his youth, had been involuntarily, he had to be, it was part of the Hitler youth. It strikes me, as, as I'm hearing both of you speak about his legacy and his gifts as a theologian and perhaps his lacking administrative capacities. Something that he said to a friend that I read recently, and he said, it was easy to know the doctrine. It's much harder to help a billion people live it. Dave, I wonder how you hear that. 
That that's a terrific uh, quotation, and I think that's absolutely true. And that's not just only as a um, governing uh, figure for the church or an administrator for the church. It's also, frankly, as a pastor. Look, you know, again, <laughs> um, you have to have sympathy for people who are, you know, thrust into these positions. Benedict Ratzinger was always a scholar, a, an academic, a teacher in the classroom. Suddenly, you are the supreme pastor of the church at 78 years old with all of these, you know, health issues that Jerry mentioned. Um, and, and also, as Jerry, you know, as Jerry knows, following on Pope John Paul II after a 26-year papacy traveling everywhere around the world. It's the entire profile of what a pope is has radically changed. I don't think people understand that. Up until John XXIII, nobody even went outside the Vatican. Now they're expected to fly globally many times a year. How, how do you go from being a scholar, a shy person, an introvert, to suddenly being a media figure, a, a shaper and maker on the global stage? Come on, that's incredibly difficult. There is so much to discuss here. Benedict's legacy is vast. And there are so many more things that I wanted to discuss with you, Jerry. I know that he has been instrumental in relations between the Vatican and China. And I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to talk about it on the show. But maybe just to hand over to you finally, Jerry, you're there now. Uh, you've been covering the Vatican for decades. What stays? I think that the memory of a humble man, I think people saw him as a humble man. He, he had the stage, but he, he didn't want the stage. I always remember his, the first world youth meeting that he went to when he went to Cologne, summer after he was elected Pope, and he went on the boat with the young people. And you felt he was like an orphan being adopted by the young people. And yet he impressed them later at the prayer vigil by the powerful, I think, inspirational way he was talking to them about God. In a way, he seemed a stranger in the modern world in many ways, even though he was trying to bind the faith to the contemporary problems. And admitted as much. I mean, he, he said that when he resigned, that he was not equipped to deal with the modern-day church. But he, I think David is absolutely right. His heart was in study in thinking, in reflection. A top historian said to me recently that since the year 440, when we had Leo the Great was elected Pope, you've not had a, a man elected Pope with such theological preparation as Benedict had when he was elected. And Francis said the other day, he had moved from the theological thinking into contemplation. And so he was doing theology on his knees. I think that's a good place to leave this show with our prayers for Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Jerry, Dave, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Audio editing by Kevin Christopher Robles and Christabel Spielman. This show was recorded in the William J. Loeschitz Studio in New York City, and our studio manager is Kevin Jackson. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. A video version of this interview is also available at America Media's YouTube channel. A link is in our show notes. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, 
follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also find our coverage of Benedict XVI at americamagazine.org. While you're there, consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's really easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.